and welcome to the 11th episode of What's the Alternative? I'm your Tyler, you're the listener, and I'm your host, Tyler Herman. And uh, as I'm recording this, it is April 11th. As you may or may not have noticed, I did skip last week. Um, We had some family stuff with Easter, and I thought that it might be time to take a a short break and kind of collect my thoughts and... um, yeah, could you do a little bit of break? So that actually brings me to something that I really want to um, get feedback on from you all. If this sort of thing happens again, where I take short breaks, which is totally, uh, it's going to happen at some point. Um, how do you want me to tell you that? Do you want me to just post this on my regular Twitter account? And, and I'll be kind of in the mix of other stuff that I, I put on Twitter. Or should I have a separate Twitter account directly for this podcast? I've been kind of trying to avoid that just because this podcast is really coming from from me personally and it's not kind of its own thing. And I don't really expect it to be big enough that it's going to justify having its own <laughs> kind of platform. But if that kind of seems necessary, then um, I'm happy to do that sort of thing uh, for the, these sorts of announcements. And then, you know, maybe you just don't say anything about it and y'all just find out when you find out. So let me know your thoughts. Um, do you have a preferred method of getting news about this sort of thing? Is it just not a big deal? Um, either way, works works on my end. We want to make it as, as kind of obvious and simple for, for you all as possible. So because I skipped an entire week, um, there's a whole extra week's worth of news. So this is going to be a long episode. Um, I've got a lot of stuff to talk about, but I'll also kind of blow through some of it because... Some of the announcements that came out are just a little bit boring, to be honest. So to jump right in, um, first topic of the day is is regarding Nissan. So uh, it's kind of a neat announcement that uh, they're using some old EV batteries, old electric vehicle batteries from their Nissan Leafs for autonomous robots in their factories. So this is really neat. Um, you know, a lot of these autonomous robots are electric already, so they're battery powered, you know, largely because, you know, they're indoors in factories. And so you get carbon monoxide and, and pollution um, issues when when you have internal combustion indoors. So you either have excellent circulation, which costs a lot of extra money, and then you know carbon monoxide monitors and all this sort of stuff, or you just go with electric, which is is kind of the the state of the art. Um, most of these little robots uh, used to be lead acid uh, batteries, but they're really expensive. They're very heavy, and they had to be replaced every year or so. So I mean, lead acid batteries aren't ex- especially expensive, but um, you know when they have to re- be replaced every one or two years, that really adds a lot of cost. And the lithium-ion batteries they're using from old Nissan Leafs only need to be replaced once every seven years or so. So you're getting a second life for these batteries, which is excellent, and they're actually you know saving them money and. Um, and you don't have to worry about recycling because recycling batteries is is a, a total bear. It's very very difficult to do, and they're finding another use for these batteries to to kind of avoid having to do that. So I think that's really exciting. Kind of like I mentioned, um, I think one or two episodes ago, about the automaker that was looking at um, basically taking batteries back after their vehicles were retired, after you know consumers were done with the vehicles, so that they kind of controlled the supply chain of these second life batteries or for their battery recycling. This is kind of another way to do that, where they're taking their batteries back and they're putting them directly to use. And, and I think that's just a really, well, I think we'll see a lot more of this in the near future as the kind of available number of batteries increases and as, as EVs start getting retired. So really need to see it so early on, uh, good on Nissan for kind of pursuing that quickly. 
So speaking of Nissan, uh, we have more details released about the Nissan Aria, which is their fully electric vehicle that is still slated for release this year. Um, I've said a few times now that the Nissan Aria looks like a really cool electric vehicle. It looks like a huge step up from the Nissan Leaf. Actually, you know, the recent generation of Nissan Leaf has been um, a much more attractive car than their, their first and second generations or whatever. So it's neat, neat to see the Aria coming out, get a little bit more details. They're still looking at around a $40,000 starting price in around a 300-mile range. So kind of bog standard for, for the new EVs being released that are not in the luxury uh, region. It still looks awesome. There, there's a whole article that you can read through a bunch of a bunch of notes about it and pictures and all that sort of stuff, but I won't really get into that. If you're interested, feel free to look at the article. I do have this really funny quote here because the article is a little bit snarky towards the end. So uh, back in 2020, a Nissan executive kind of made a kind of made a bit of a dumb mistake. And, and I'll just quote from the article here because it, it provides a little bit of context. It's pretty funny. This is a Nissan has not said whether women will be able to um, will be able to handle charging the Aria because in 2020, a Nissan exec said the company would shift away from electric vehicles partially because charging was quote unquote a hassle, and the executive implied that lifting a heavy cable was too difficult for female drivers. Uh, presumably, another innovation introduced with the Nissan Aria will be a lighter cable, perhaps colored pink. And I just love that sort of snark in these articles. That was such a stupid thing for the exec to say. It's a stupid thing for them to believe, first and foremost. Um, and I think that they, they deserve flack for that. So I really enjoyed reading that. Uh, I got a, quite a good laugh out of that. So moving on from Nissan, uh, the Ford Mustang Mach-E sales appear to be very, very good. So they're, they're as good as expected. They're really on pace with everything. And they don't uh, stay on dealership lots for very long. So this recent kind of report came out that they only sit on lots for an average of seven days, which in the industry is called dwell time, and how long a vehicle sits on a lot before it's sold. Now, I tried to look up industry standard dwell times, and wow, was that a difficult metric to find. Uh, I did not find good data on it, to be honest with you. Uh, most of the dwell time I could find with dealerships was about how long customers hung out at dealerships whenever they were buying vehicles. So if anybody happens to know a good metric for that, please let me know. Um, I spent quite a while looking for that and could not find it, but seven days seems very, very fast. So it's good to see that the Mustang Mach-E is selling um, at least as well as they expected it to, and I hope that that, that continues, because again, it looks like a fantastic car and we need more EVs on the road. So we've got a couple of other EV announcements um, that kind of fall into the regime of I couldn't care less for the most part. So there's a new Hummer announced for 2024, it's going to have like a 300-mile range and a $110,000 price tag. I used to get really excited about these sorts of announcements um, with like you know, the luxury cars and all that sort of stuff because you need luxury cars before you're going to get down to kind of the mass market cars. But really, we're just past that point. Like when it really comes down to it, like we can do mass market cars, just not enough people are doing it. So I don't get as excited about these anymore. Uh, but there are a bunch of details in the article in the uh, description or in the show notes, so feel free to check that out. And if that's kind of your bag, then then awesome. Um, another one of those sorts of announcements, you have the Mercedes EQS, um, which is a, a recent kind of Tesla Model S E type uh, electric sedan. And the article has 12 points of comparison with the Model S, which I just thought, you know, some people might be interested in. Uh, maybe we have another Tesla killer on our hands. 
So moving on, uh, Rivian has released some details about their battery warranty. So this is kind of in the in the works for a while now, and the battery warranty is going to cover um, up to seven one hundred seventy five thousand miles, or eight years with a minimum of seventy percent battery capacity. So the battery can degrade by thirty percent before it would be covered under the warranty. Um, so you know. That's pretty cool. I think we get a lot of these warranties are pretty pretty aggressive and pretty um, they cover a lot. And the kind of article took the stance of this beats Tesla's warranty and this beats everybody else's warranty program. And I'm kind of of the opinion that if you're relying on warranties, then your vehicle's just not reliable enough. Um, warranties are great for sure, and you know customers take advantage of them, and that's a good thing for the customer. But when it comes to this sort of stuff, I'm like, eh. Eh, I mean, it's, it's cool, I guess, but um, it shouldn't be necessary. You should just make reliable cars. So it should mostly not be uh, necessary. So it's cool to have the details, and there are a lot of people who are getting excited about that. It's good that it's better than might have been expected because, you know, Rivian had pre-orders open for a long time, and it would kind of suck if people backed out of those pre-orders because the warranty was crap. So moving along, um, just a total surprise to no one, I think, uh, Tesla crushed their quarter one sales records um, in quarter one of this year. So it's up 110% um, over Q1 of 2020. So year over year, the 10% increase in, in sales, which is exciting. A Q1 is is uh, famously a bad quarter for automakers and for, for vehicle sales. So it's really cool that they're, they're continuing to do so well in the first quarter of every year. So not a huge surprise with the, the new factories coming online and everything, but it's still good to see that those numbers are really strong. And more interesting news from Tesla, uh, they're expected to deliver 15 Tesla semis to PepsiCo this year. So Tesla semi has been long awaited. I think it was announced four years ago now or something something to that effect. And a lot of people really doubt that, that this vehicle would ever really come online. And, and it looks like it finally is. So I think these would be the first major public um, deliveries of Tesla semis at least that, that I'm aware of. And the numbers look pretty attractive. So they're claiming a 300-mile range for the lower end, which is a $150,000 truck, um, and then a 500-mile range for the $180,000 truck, which is really interesting to see, like, the Hummer coming out at a $110,000 price tag. You can get nearly an entire Tesla Semi for that much. Um, same with a lot of the other, like, Lucid and all those vehicles. So... It's super exciting to see those cars get on the road uh, or those the semis, and hopefully, hopefully we get to see them driving around. Um, electric long haul trucking is very very difficult to do, and there are lots of very very different guesses as to when we'll actually see them uh, kind of take off, so to speak. So moving right along to kind of interesting and uh, earlier than expected news, um, Volkswagen has announced that all of their electric vehicles will have bi-directional charging starting in 2022. So this announcement, you know, pretty cool. It's nice to see that automakers getting in on it. But I kind of want to talk a little bit about um, bi-directional charging in vehicle to grid because this kind of brings up a whole, um, it's just a really, really difficult thing to do and something that is, is hyped a lot. But the benefits aren't always very clear, and the challenges aren't always very clear. So bidirectional charging allows the vehicle to actually provide electricity to the electrical grid. So you can think about this as, as almost like a generator for your house if you had it plugged into your home, and you can run you know, a refrigerator or whatever off of your car's battery during a power outage. 
And so this is just like the sort of home battery storage that you can get with the um, the Tesla power packs and, and, and all the other competitors where, you know, you can use that battery, you can charge it during it when it's cheap to charge, and you can sell that electricity back to the grid when it's expensive, and you can do all sorts of really cool stuff with this. But one of the really big benefits that's often touted with uh, vehicle-to-grid capabilities or bi-directional charging capabilities is the ability to smooth out the variance in renewable energy. So the idea is that well, we've got all these vehicles, hopefully on the road, <laughs> that have gigantic battery packs, and that's just a ton of energy. And most cars, you know, for like 90% of the time, are just sitting idle, right? So if they're sitting connected to a charger because they're just having their battery maintained, and they're not going to be driven for a long time, then, you know, what if you just took some of that electric charge when needed and then gave it back when not needed? Uh, and then you can use that to kind of provide resiliency to the electrical grid. And so this is a really pr pretty cool idea, but it really relies on having a ton of these vehicles that have the capability. So it, it works much better kind of in mass. So that's one of the big things. You need a lot of partnership. You need a lot of vehicles that can do it. So that's a technology hurdle there. You need electric vehicle chargers that can do it. You know, electric vehicle chargers aren't, you know, they're not designed to accept electricity. They give it out. You need um, consumers to both know the benefits, know the risks, because you do get more battery wear and tear from charge cycles. Um know the risk when it comes to, well, how much charge are you going to have if you need to like leave in an emergency situation? So you have to have some sort of buffer built in there. You need that communication network between the vehicle, the consumer, and the electric grid itself. So you need utility buy-in. You need, uh, you just need like a ton, a ton of factors to all work together. And so far we haven't really had that. So Nissan has had a couple pilot projects in, I believe, um, in San Francisco, that have looked at vehicle to grid on a you know a 10 to 20 car scale uh, if memory serves and it's kind of looked at some of the benefits and drawbacks to sort of smooth out some of those kinks or at least try to learn try to learn where the difficulties are but we haven't had a huge no automakers putting it in every single vehicle yet uh, we haven't had too many utilities come into it and it's just kind of a big mess right now that hasn't really coalesced into a working system so it's neat to see an automaker kind of getting ahead of that uh, there have been rumors that Tesla's newer vehicles have bi-directional capability, but it's not like a, a turned-on feature, uh, so to speak. So it'll be like a software update. So it's kind of all moving in that direction, but we're not there yet. And so this announcement, I think, kind of kind of pushes us just a little bit further. And I know I, know I mentioned it a few episodes ago, but I was um, a Honda reached out to me to fill out a survey because I own a Honda electric vehicle. And they asked me how I felt about bidirectional charging. And they were asking about vehicle-to-grid technology, trying to get some consumer feedback. So it looks like they're considering it as well. So it's really neat to see the parts sort of falling into place a little bit. And speaking of those parts falling into place, California's Public Utility Commission is expected to issue a uh, decision regarding vehicle-to-grid feasibility very soon. So having PUCs, the Public Utility Commissions, on board is, again, is another one of those large puzzle pieces and apparently they're going to have a, some sort of announcement in, you know, in the coming weeks or, or maybe, maybe months. It wasn't very, the timeline wasn't very clear from the article. So again, very exciting that we're finally getting some of these pieces kind of falling into place. And, and I can't wait to kind of follow the progress. But speaking of Volkswagen um, and not as good things, um, y'all may have noticed that they 
uh, leaked some information that Volkswagen, so like electric Volt, which is stupid, um, would be the new brand for EVs in the United States. So they'd be rebranding as Volkswagen, which is terrible in my opinion, because I already pronounce Volkswagen basically with a T. It's a very muddy set of consonants there. And I just hate that sort of confusion. Uh, what turns out, it was an April Fool's joke, but it was a um, it was an intentionally leaked April Fool's joke. And the really frustrating thing about this is that it was leaked like two or three days in advance of, of April 1st. And as the article will mention, um, the journalists who are covering this reached out to Volkswagen multiple times to ask them, like, hey, is this real or is this an April Fool's joke? And all of them said it was real. Um, so Volkswagen confirmed, hey, this is a real thing. It's not a joke. And then they backed out and said it was a joke afterwards. And so I think that that's just generally problematic. It's not particularly nice of them. Uh, also, I hate April Fool's Day. But the worst part is that their stocks actually even increased a little bit after after this quote-unquote leak. So... Um, this just seems like a really sketchy thing to do. And I'm just kind of thinking like Volkswagen does not need more scandals. <laughs> I don't know why they decided to do that. It was just a really, really strange um, string of decisions that they made. But moving on to more interesting news, uh, a coalition of manufacturers, including Yamaha, Suzuki, Honda, and Kawasaki, all agreed on a swappable battery standard for electric motorcycles. So we've talked about battery swap before and how difficult it is and how a couple companies seem to be doing okay with it so far. Um, but we had this collaboration between four major motorcycle manufacturers who are all looking at electric motor motorcycles, and they agreed on a standard for the battery swap. And the cool thing about battery swap for motorcycles versus a car is that those batteries are quite small. So they can be manually swapped, which means you don't need either um, hired people to change the batteries out at quote-unquote charging stations or these fueling stations. And you don't need some sort of autonomous equipment to, you know, take the battery out of your vehicle and then put the new one back in like you would with an electric vehicle. So swappable batteries make a lot more sense for electric motorcycles just in terms of feasibility compared to like an electric vehicle. So I think it's really cool that they've come across, a, they've decided on a standard I like that they're getting ahead of the problem like that. And I hope we see more of it. Uh, electric motorcycles are kind of an obvious use case, but uh, but it's kind of difficult to make, make happen at the moment just because of um, charging availability and the upfront cost of batteries. Pretty, pretty prohibitive at the moment. So speaking of charging electric vehicles, uh, ChargePoint has announced a partnership with NATSO, which I think stands for North American Truck Stop Organization or something to that effect. Uh, their website actually doesn't have a, um, uh, an expansion of their acronym, at least not that I saw. Um, but they've announced a partnership with them to uh, install a bunch of electric vehicle chargers at truck stops and fueling stations across the country. So it's about a $1 billion um, amount of funding that they're they're devoting to this and they're hoping to install chargers at about 4000 locations across the United States. So it's cool to see these partnerships between between multiple companies and organizations and uh and again we we need more charging. So I'm all for this. We have two bits of deployment news for electric vehicles. Um, in Idaho, there is a company that has deployed two BYD electric refuse trucks. So these are trash haulers. Uh, BYD is the Chinese electric vehicle manufacturer. It stands for Build Your Dreams. They also have a, um, 
I believe they have a manufacturing facility in California as well, which means that they, they meet some uh, Buy America standards, which is important for, for some procurement. But electric refuse trucks are really interesting. It's really difficult to do. It's not a very kind uh, uh, use case. So we've had a couple of deployments in like pilot projects in New York City and such. Um, but this seems to be, to my eyes, the first non-pilot project um, deployment for electric refuse trucks. So I love to see it. In other deployment news, DHL, the logistics and delivery company, is deploying 100 lightning electric delivery trucks. So these are the sort of box trucks, uh, the Ford Transit vans that do like local delivery. So they're going to be deploying up to 100 of them by the end of this year across the country. And this is really great because this is a super good use case for electric trucks. Um, Just like we're talking about with USPS over the last few episodes, this is just a bit of a no-brainer. And it's really neat to see such a big company, such an important company, uh, deploying this many uh, electric trucks. So that's just this year. Hopefully we'll see more investment from them in the future. Um, So we kind of need them to get ahead of that. Uh, Last mile delivery like that is, is quite important and has a lot of emissions associated with it. So love to see it. So moving on from electric vehicles to energy in general, um, there's a a report that came out by Politico recently that suggests that clean energy jobs pay less than fossil fuel alternatives. So this is kind of an interesting one because a lot of the um, clean energy (laughs) job proposals and like bill proposals and such, especially under, under Biden, have talked about, you know, good paying clean energy jobs, right? And this report kind of suggests that it's not quite as good paying as the fossil fuel alternatives. So looking at some of the data, um, some solar workers make a median of $24 an hour versus natural gas industry workers, which make a median of $30 an hour. So that's a pretty significant uh, difference. You know, that's about a 25% uh, less money. And uh, this kind of points to one potential issue with moving towards renewables. Um, I talk about this quite a bit. You know, the the jobs aren't one for one. You can't just leave a fossil fuel job and immediately get a solar job. The jobs aren't co-located, so they're not in the same geographic area, um, at least not always. And if we're also getting to the point where, you know, the, the pay is less, you know, that makes it pretty difficult to, to just switch those jobs over. So even if we do produce more jobs from clean energy, so some, some data does suggest that um, money spent on clean energy produces way more jobs uh, like per dollar, so to speak, than fossil fuel alternatives. So that's that's pretty good for employment numbers. But if that you know the dollar for dollar amount on a wage basis is not the same, then that might make it pretty unattractive to leave fossil fuel jobs. And those workers might you know they're going to get dipl- displaced some way or another. And we need to be thinking about that a lot. So there are some counter arguments to this. So one of them that that's touted uh, by a former energy a DOE executive is that. Even the $24 an hour that a solar worker makes, on, you know, again, median, is relatively high compared to the U.S. average um, or U.S. median wage, which is $19 an hour. So, you know, that that's a decent argument to some degree, but it's also not a great argument because we're trying to relocate fossil fuel workers to these new jobs because where else are they going to work? So there's a lot more data in the article. It's a well worth a, a read. There's just, just a ton there. but. I thought this would be interesting just to mention, just to kind of get thinking about. It's not just employment numbers, it's also it's also their pay. And there's a ton of factors that go into this. Um, I wouldn't make the hard line, 
statement that clean energy jobs are less attractive because of this pay difference. I think there's just too many confounding factors. Um, but it, it's really interesting to be thinking about. And then kind of another thing about clean energy is this other announcement about a proposed pump hydroelectric project, um, pumped hydroelectric project, which is a, an energy storage project, would be built on Rattlesnake Mountain, which is a mountain that is very important to the Yakama Nation, to the, you know, a native uh, Native American tribe. And that's, you know, that's a big deal. We have a lot of these issues when it comes to pipelines and people talk about uh, infringing on native lands and that sort of thing. But this happens with clean energy as well. And this pumped hydroelectric storage project, which would be an important project to have for our grid, uh, does infringe on, on native land. And it's just kind of an interesting thing to um, to discuss. The article goes a lot into this, and I think it's again it's well worth a read. But these sorts of problems keep happening, and they're probably not going to stop happening. So I think it's really worth pointing out when you know clean energy has has certain effects on on certain you know cultural groups. Uh, it's important to think about, and I think that we need to be as mindful as we can of it. In happier news, a renewable natural gas project in North Carolina was um, it was given the go-ahead by the Department of Environmental Quality. They did some uh, water quality research, was what they're focusing on, this last little bit of go-ahead. So the project will be a, four, um, a collection of four hog farms that will all basically put their manure together and produce biomethane from that. And it's a project collaboration between Smithfield Foods and Dominion Energy. So... These sorts of projects are really cool because the baseline, you know, what's happening now with these farms is that the manure is being managed in, in some way and it ends up producing a bunch of methane. It, that just happens. And that methane is not being collected. It's not being used. It's not being flared. There's just nothing happening with it. It's going to the atmosphere. And methane is about 25 times worse than CO2 as a greenhouse gas. So this results in a lot of CO2 emissions or a lot of carbon emissions, I should say. Um, and again, carbon equivalence is what we, we usually talk about. So this has a pretty big global warming effect. So collecting that manure and putting it together has a bunch of benefits. One of the benefits is that you get to use that methane. So you're destroying it, turning it into CO2, whether you're burning it in a vehicle for you know just transportation, or if you're burning it in an electricity plant and producing electricity with it, or if you're burning it in homes for home heating, um, cooking, and that sort of stuff. Either way, you're taking that methane, burning it, turning it into CO2, and that reduces its global warming potential by a factor of 25, which is already a benefit. And you're offsetting fossil natural gas, which wasn't going to be released into the atmosphere because it was locked away in, in shale deposits or whatever. So these projects actually come out to be, uh, depending on how you do the accounting, they can end up being carbon negative. So they're re totally removing carbon from the atmosphere mostly because of offsetting fossil natural gas that would have otherwise been used. So these projects are really exciting. Um, some of the stats on this particular project is it includes a total of 19 farms. The annual RNG pro uh, production is roughly equivalent to the amount needed to heat 4,500 homes. Again, that's annually. Um, they give numbers in in decatherms and all sorts of silliness. I'm not going to bother going into those because those units are terrible. The annual emissions reductions that they calculate is 157,000 metric tons per year. Um, and then they have some comparisons. The annual climate benefit is, quote-unquote, the same as taking 36,000 cars off the road or planting 2.7 million new trees every year. So uh, those are the numbers 
from Align RNG, the company that's managing the project. But, you know, those numbers do kind of shake out to, to make sense depending on their actual production. So really cool project, really glad that this sort of stuff is getting um, kind of getting passed. And one of the things that I do want to mention, you know, we're talking about environmental justice, just like the, the pumped hydro, hydro project I mentioned a second ago. Um, you get a lot of people worried about these dairy farms, and these hog farms uh, collecting their gas and, and doing stuff with it. Because you get the idea that some, some people think you um, end up producing more emissions that way, more local pollution. And that's patently not true. So the really important thing to remember is that you go from unmanaged emissions where you have this manure out in a field or in a lagoon or whatever, and it's just venting to the atmosphere. When you go to these RNG projects and you're actually collecting it and cleaning it, that cleaning process actually removes the pollutants from the gas and it doesn't vent it. They actually get trapped in a physical medium and that medium is, is, is handled by uh, a waste company. So you're actually removing emissions locally. So it should result in fewer local emissions compared to the base case where you just, you know, have a farm doing the normal manure management. So there are definitely environmental justice benefits here as well. And then if you're using that natural gas in vehicles, you know, most transportation, especially heavy duty transportation that would use natural gas vehicles uh, goes through underserved areas. You know, underserved areas are more likely to be in your interstates with more travel. And, you know, replacing those vehicles there will reduce uh, pollutant emissions from the tailpipe as well, because natural gas engines produce significantly less NOx emissions, which is one of the primary pollutants that we care about when it comes to public health, and uh, significantly less uh, particulate matter emissions as well, which is, once again, one of those emissions that's really bad for public health. So I think there's a really good argument to be had that this is a good environmental justice uh, type of project to undergo or to, to pursue. So speaking of local emissions and such, uh, National Renewable Energy Laboratory uh, just finished a study for the city of Los Angeles to figure out how they can reach 100% renewable electricity. So the project's called MAPS, and it's super detailed. You can read all about it on the website. Um, I didn't have time to dig into it enough to really speak about too very much here, and we may discuss this in a later episode, no promises. But the website is fantastic for it. They do a really good job of displaying displaying the data and going into it. And I definitely recommend you at least give it a glance. And then the last bit of energy uh, news that I have for you is that the Texas Senate has unanimously agreed to harden the electric grid following that big freeze from uh, February. So they're going to manage their electric grid and make it uh, hopefully not susceptible for this sort of issue anymore, which is which is really exciting because I think we need that. That was a pretty big disaster. So moving along from electricity, I want to talk a little bit about a couple policy items. So the first one is a continuation of an earlier story about the battery manufacturer SK Innovation. So I talked about them getting into a little bit of a legal spat with LG Kim over some patent infringement or some alleged patent infringement. Um, long story short, this story is kind of ended. Uh, they ended up settling with LG Kim and have paid or will be paying 1.8 billion US dollars to LG Kim. One of the interesting things here is that they have agreed to a 10-year non-assertion uh, ag agreement, which as far as I'm aware means that they're basically kind of absolved for like 10 years and don't have to, to worry about <laughs> the patent issues. Um, I'm not a lawyer. That's just my my basic understanding of this. And there are, there's a statement from um, 
John Hyun Kim of LG Kim. And I think this is a pretty interesting statement. So I'm going to read just two little parts of it. So the first quote is, This settlement demonstrates LG Energy Solutions' willingness to protect and maintain a fair and competitive climate within the EV industry. This agreement also reinforces the significance of our intellectual property acquired over the past 30 years. So, you know, that statement's kind of a, we want the industry to work. And, uh, and also, our intellectual property is very important. You can see how important it is. Uh, because of this, which I think is, is quite an interesting thing to say. And then he makes some some announcements later on about being a global pioneer in the industry and how he supports pri- uh, President Biden's environmental policies and that sort of thing. So it's, that's posturing, of course. It's great. And they announced that they're going to be investing over $4.5 billion into U.S. business uh, by 2025, focusing on, on battery manufacturing. And... Um, and that includes their joint venture plant with GM. So, uh, pretty pretty fun quote from, or a set of quotes from LG Kim. And I guess it's nice that they reached a, a sort of settlement. You know, I was kind of torn on whether I thought that President Biden should veto the ITC ruling that they had to um, they had to cancel that plant. So it's nice we kind of we we have an end result where we have more battery production, and I think that's a good thing. So I don't have a ton of information on this particular news item, but uh, there is word that more strict EPA emission standards will be announced in July. So this would undo some of the Trump-era rollbacks and will potentially allow California to set their own emission standards. So these emission standards are are some that I've talked about quite a bit, which are the CAFE standards, so um, corporate average fuel economy standards. And it basically tells automakers how efficient their vehicles have to be at a minimum. And they were rolled back during the Trump era EPA, and looks like they're going to be rolling forward with the Biden era, uh, era EPA. Not sure if I can say roll forward in that context. So July, uh, we should have some news about that, and I'm sure I'll be checking back in with it. So more Biden news, uh, his infrastructure plan that he, he announced recently, I'm not going to go too, too much into it, but it has a heavy EV focus with $174 billion to be invested in EVs. So this is just a plan that was pushed forward. Um, this isn't enacted yet. But a couple of the high-level items that I have for you on that is that it's going to focus on installing 500,000 electric vehicle charges, which I know we've talked about before, replacing 50,000 diesel transit buses across the country, uh, replacing 20% of school buses with electric school buses. This will all be done by 2030, which is very fast for that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, we need sort of aggressive policy like that. And there's also potential mentioned in the article that they might change the federal electric vehicle tax to not be absolutely terrible. So I'm not going to rail about this again, but the federal EV tax is um, just not structured to do what it is purported to do. Um, The pinned thread on my Twitter account is a a short rant about that. So feel free to read more information there, or you can listen to like, I think every episode of this podcast I've probably mentioned at least once. So I won't rant about it again. So moving on, uh, another bit of legislation news, Massachusetts just passed a very aggressive climate bill. So some of the high-level items here, 85% carbon reduction by 2050. The remaining 15% of that um, zero-carbon goal by 2050 is going to be through direct capture, so something like carbon capture and sequestration, uh, tree planting, and then other kind of similar solutions. So um, not just not producing as much carbon, but also removing it for that remaining 15%. A lot of focus on offshore wind, uh, which is exciting. They've got a lot of offshore wind projects either in the works or already installed. So 
looks like they're kind of going hard on that on that particular path. And we should have a lot more details in the near future. Uh, a little bit scant in details at the moment, but I thought it was at least worth mentioning because that's a very aggressive climate bill. And then I wanted to mention this last thing. There was a terrible, terrible, terrible report that was released by an organization called New York Renews, which is an environmental coalition, amongst other things. And the report just railed against renewable fuels. I won't go a huge amount into it here, but the long and short of it is that they published a letter saying that New York shouldn't pursue stuff like renewable natural gas, biodiesel, ethanol, um, green hydrogen, and all sorts of stuff. And it's just, there's just a lot in there. Um, I don't want to make any judgment about the coalition themselves. I don't know anything else about them. They, they're just New York-based, and I, I don't, I'm not very familiar. But this one report on its own, I have tons and tons and tons of issues with. So this brings me to one of my questions for you, the listener. I'm thinking that it might be fun to do a read-along of some of these reports that come out, because there, there are plenty of them, where... I do a special episode, it won't replace the weekly news episodes, where I just go through paragraph by paragraph or page by page and just talk about some of the bad assumptions or some of the good assumptions in these reports. Because it's really difficult to parse a lot of that information, especially if you don't work in the industry. And, you know, some of it, it's it's kind of given this scientific guise and you end up believing it because it looks reasonable enough and it's all packaged really, really well. And they use, you know, they talk about studies that are legitimate studies, even if they aren't exactly applicable. And it's just kind of different, uh, difficult to tease apart. So if you would be interested in such a thing, I think the format would basically be um, provide a link to the full study. And then I would just go through page by page and just talk about each little bit, um, probably with some supporting links to maybe better studies or or some other documentation like that. And then I'll just go through, it might be long and mostly unedited, and just talk about the report and the different issues with it um, and even some of the some of the good parts. Because every one of these reports has um, has at least something that's right. You, you kind of can't say that many, you can't say that much without eventually being right to some degree. Although some people try very hard. So if you're interested in such a thing, there are lots of reports in mind. This particular one uh, is, is one that I'm definitely interested in trying that sort of thing with. And if not, you know, I might just throw that in at the end of some of these episodes where I talk about a couple of the bad assumptions. So that's all the news I have for you today. Again, that was quite a long one, but there was a ton of news, and I hope that at least kept you entertained for the last like 40 minutes or however long this has been. As always, you can find all the articles down in the show notes below with the brief descriptions. You can reach me at Archduke Tyler on Twitter if you have any feedback that you'd like to provide. Again, if you want to tell me your thoughts about how I can communicate with you whenever episodes are not going to come out or, or episodes are delayed or whatever the deal might be, uh, maybe I can make a new Twitter account or whatever. So please reach out to me and, and let me know your thoughts on that. Let me know your thoughts on the idea of going through a report um, kind of page by page and discussing some of the, the good and the bad assumptions. And yeah, hope you enjoyed. And I'll see you next week, I think for real this time, I don't think I'm going to skip next week, uh, whenever you tune in again, inevitably, because I mean, we can all be honest here, what's the alternative? Mm-hmm.